John chapter 19. Paul tells us in the book of Corinthians that what we do when we take communion is that we proclaim the death of Jesus until he returns. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic in Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier. Also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scriptures, which says they divided my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were the were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour on, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And since it was the day of preparation, and so that the body Bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate for their legs to be broken, that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. When they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But the one of but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he has he knows that he is telling the truth, that you might also believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. And again, 
Another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. And so so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as in the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in in which no one had had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb, Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and they saw the linen cloths lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in its place by itself. And the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scriptures that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Heavenly Father, Sometimes we can read this story and think it too simple. Would we stand on the truth of Scripture that teaches us that your plan for salvation was that your Son take upon himself the punishment of death to freely give it to us and to defeat death in his resurrection. We are thankful that Jesus spoke the words, it is finished. We know that all that we need to be yours is from him and his work on the cross in his defeat of death and his resurrection. As we take these symbols, the bread, which represents and reminds us of the body of Christ, and the cup, which shows us his blood that was spilt to establish this new covenant that you have made with us. 
that those who would cast themselves upon him in his work might be saved. We praise you in the name of our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus. Amen. Let's pray for our offering. Heavenly Father, there's so many things that we try to do as worship of you and your goodness to us, and the least of which is our giving back. We know that we are abundantly blessed uh, here in this country and in this region. And we know that the reason why you bless us is to turn and bless others. 
We pray that our hearts would be cheerful as we give today. And that you would use our giving not as what we've given, but as abundantly more as only you can multiply. We pray that we would be good stewards and we would use it wisely through your counsel. It's in Jesus' precious name. Morning, church. It's good to see you this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 15. <clears throat> Let's pray. Great Heavenly Father. We are so thankful for the abundance of your grace in our lives. That through the work of Christ Jesus on the cross, that we have been bought, paid for. That in his resurrection we have been freed. We thank you that we who were once lost We're now found. It's in your precious and holy Son, Jesus' name. Amen. Like I said, Luke chapter 15, let's look at verse 1. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, him being Jesus. 
And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so. I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what, uh, what, or, or what woman, <clears throat> having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and, and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner. Who repents. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would teach the truths of your of, of the Word of God to our hearts this morning. In Jesus' precious name. So today we're going to look at, at another set of three parables. I'll give you a few just upfront cautions as we go through. We're going to spend most of our time in, in the third parable because I think this is where the weight of what Jesus is teaching is found. I think he uses these first two parables to, to kind of set the stage. And, and I said a couple weeks ago when we looked at three parables a few weeks ago, three parables in succession, that it's, it's a very Jewish thing to be repetitive. Right. When, when, a, when a Jewish person, when, when they want to emphasize something, they say it twice. When they want to drive it home, they say it three times. This is why in Revelation, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb to be slain. It's three times repeated refrain. Jesus, in, in this instance, he actually is going to tell us, Four parables, but what he's going to do with that fourth parable, which we're not going to look at today, is he's going to pick up on the secondary point of these three parables, and he's going to kind of flesh that out a little bit more with that fourth parable. All three of these parables, the ones that we're going to look at today, bear the same theme. A lost thing is found, and there is great rejoicing. Very simple. Lost thing is found, and there is great rejoicing. What we've been talking about over the last uh, five weeks, is we've been going through the Easter season, we've been talking about the, the generous grace of God, what, what God is, is giving to us, which we do not rightfully deserve. When we were going through Lent, 
We're talking about the things that we aren't receiving that we do justly deserve, namely punishment for our sinfulness and our thankfulness that God has has mercy upon us. And, and now we're thankful that God has grace for us and he gives it to us, not, not in small measure, but in massive measure as we've seen. There's no different today. But what we've also seen as we've gone through these parables, and we've I've picked and chose the parable, pick, picked and chose the parables that we were going through. I don't know what the grammatic grammatic way to say that is, but I've picked and, and, and chose the the parables that that we were going through specifically because they talk about who the Father is in His generosity towards us. Not all of Jesus' parables are this way, but but many of them are. But one of the things that we have found as we've gone through these parables is is this pattern that Jesus has laid out for us. He's taken a common common way of teaching a parable, which is simply telling a truth in story form that becomes memorable. In a a culture that predominantly learns through oral communication, it's, it's important to tell stories. This is why in the Old Testament, the Old Testament is predominantly narrative. Because it's easy to remember. So before it was written down in a book, it was just stories told from father to son and from father to son and from father to son. This is typical patterns, typical of oral cultures. But what Jesus does with his parables is he is he he places the, the emphasis in this twist. And and we've talked about how how and and, and almost all the parables that we've looked at, how each one of these twists has been very, very big. The forgiveness of 10,000 talents of, of, of gold. It's a monster. It's a huge... Uh, uh, 10,000 talents of gold. 10,000 talents. It's a massive debt that's just forgiven. It's done. You, you needed it for... You can't pay it back. It's done. It's gone. Right? It's shocking. We've seen this over and over and over again. But now we're going to look at two parables that, that don't have big twists. At least not at surface level. I mentioned the parable of the lost sheep a few weeks ago. And we're not going to really study this parable. How it's really not normal to leave 99 sheep by themselves. It's an unusual situation that Jesus paints for us. But I don't necessarily think that that's the twist that Jesus is talking about. So let's look at this real quick. The scenario that is causing Jesus to tell us these three parables is the grumblings of the Pharisees and the scribes. The religious leaders, the religious elite, those who are doing all sorts of good things. They're following the law. They're calling others to follow the law. All very, very good things. But the problem with the Pharisees, which we talked about last week, the problem with the Pharisees is not that they're doing good things. It's that they're doing good things because they believe it puts them in right standing with God. That by doing their good things, they're balancing the scales and then God somehow maybe owes them. His blessing and His presence in their lives, which is not what the Bible teaches, which is what Jesus confronts throughout the Gospels. 
But one of the things that's happening with Jesus is because he has come to call sinners to repentance and to call sinners back into the arms of God is that all sorts of sinners are coming to him naturally, right? And Jesus says elsewhere, I didn't come for the for the well, I came for the sick. I came for those who, who need me, not for those who don't need me. And they notice this. The Pharisees and the scribes, they notice this and they grumble. And they say, this man receives sinners and eats with them. What a, what a, what a horrible thing for Jesus to do, right? To be with people who need a physician. Sadly, this is not an uncommon belief in, in churches today. I think far too often we're, we resemble the scribes and the Pharisees more than we should. But that's the scenario. Jesus then tells two parables. The first parable he tells is the parable of, uh, excuse me, the parable of the lost sheep. He says there's what man, what man who has a hundred sheep, if he loses one, doesn't go and find the one. But there's, there's a human logic to that, right? We get both sides of, of the, the possibilities. We, we get the one side that you have one sheep that's lost. So I, I don't want to lose my one sheep. I don't want to lose one one hundredth of my income. Just let it wander away. So we get it. Oh, yeah, yeah, you would go after it. But then, but then you have to think about the counter to this, which is also human logic, logic and wisdom. That, that What about the 99? Would you really leave the, the 99? Because which is a bigger number? Let's go to simple, you know, kindergarten math. Which is bigger, 1 or 99? Well, 99 is bigger. 99 is more important. 99 is more valuable. And so we think, about oh, this is kind of a challenge. What, what, what do I do? And then we have to add in the fact that any, any shepherd worth, worth his salt would be keeping a close eye on his hundred sheep. That's why he's a shepherd, to keep his eye on his sheep. Because when one goes wandering away and you leave the 99, there's a great potential for another to wander away or, or worse, a wolf to come in and you're not there to defend. What happens if a wolf comes in and, and eats kills nine of your sheep while you're looking for that one. Oh. Challenging, I think. But I think it really gives us pause. The one really nice thing about these, these two parables, the ones that we've looked at so far, is that Jesus immediately... He immediately tells us what they're about. Right? He says it's just like one sinner coming back into the fold of God. One sinner going back into the wallet of God. And how happy we are about it. So we immediately we go to we go to our sinful natures, because right, we are all sinners. But what is our logic? <laughs> what is our logic? I think we don't fault on the side of going, well, I'm valuable, so God is clearly going to come and rescue me whenever I've wandered away. We don't think that way about ourselves. At least most of us don't. 
I think most of us, we probably err on the side, on the other side. Well, there's all those other righteous people. That's who God wants, not me, a lost sheep. My sin is too filthy. My distance from God is too great. After all, the Bible tells me that I should be perfect, and I am so far from perfect that I can't even fathom the distance it is between myself and God. We've probably all seen the Bible track where, where you have a nice road, and then sin comes in and you know, cuts away the earth, and there's a chasm between you and God. And then we bring in the cross, and it's a nice little bridge. It's a nice picture. It's a pretty picture. But, but most, many of us, we get stuck. Look at how big that divide is. God doesn't want me. But that's not what Jesus says, is it? He says, no, he leaves the 99, and he goes and he finds the sheep. A more easy one to see is if you lose some money in your house, I don't care how much money you have. This lady had 10 days wages. That's it.
when he came to himself, he said, how, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And no longer to be wor worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. We live in a culture where we, we would call it a, a law-based culture. Meaning we, we determine morality based on whether or not we follow laws. So if you break a bunch of laws, you're a bad person. But if you follow a bunch of laws, you're a good person. And the more laws you follow, the better person that you are. And the less laws you follow, the worse person you are. So a person who just only maybe breaks the speed limit every once in a while, but, but all the rest of the laws, they're, they're, they're a good person. But a person who is murdered and stolen and does, does drugs, they're a bad person, right? Because we, we determine morality based on the law. In the ancient world, and for most of human history, this is not how we determine morality. We determine morality based on honor and shame. Now, you could be shamed by breaking the law. You could, When you broke the law, you brought shame upon yourself. But it wasn't about the breaking of the law. It was about the shame that you had. So in Japanese cultures, for example, that still, still predominantly operate in a, in a honor and shame uh, fashion, if you uh, have a child out of wedlock, that brings shame upon your family. But it doesn't just bring shame upon the, the, the woman who is not married and who is having a child. But it brings shame on the father and upon the name of the family. And that, that lasts for a long time, if it can ever be recovered. What's happening here in this story is that the younger son is shaming his father. He brings shame upon himself. He goes to his father. With the first thing that he does, he goes to his father and he says, give me my stuff. By the way, it's not his yet. The father is still alive, so it's not his yet. He demands his stuff and his father graciously gives it to him for some reason. And then he goes off into a foreign country and while, while the father may not know this, and while the, the culture around the father may not know this, the son shames his family by being reckless, by wasting money, and then being poor and desolate. He's not living life the right way. He brings shame upon his family. And to heap insult upon injury, he gets so broke that he hires himself out, which isn't unusual, but he hires himself out to apparently a pig farmer. Now, anybody who knows anything about Jewish culture, you know that pigs are unclean and, and, and Jewish people aren't supposed to eat them or touch them. And if they touch them, they become unclean. And, and he's, he's feeding the pigs. And he, he's so hungry. Did you catch that? He's so hungry that he would eat the pig's food, but he's not allowed to eat the pig's food. He's become so low and so broken and destitute that he, he isn't even allowed to eat food I'm an unclean beast. And then something clicks in his head. Logic takes over and says, you know what, this is, this is a horrible situation, but, but I recognize 
that if I would if I would just go home, not to be a son to my father, but I would just go home, receive the shame that I rightfully am, am owed, and just be his servant, I would I would be better off. It's very important that we grasp this. What is what's happening here is nothing special. It's not it's not smart. It's not wisdom. It's simple, basic human nature. To realize that if I'm in a bad situation and there is another situation that I could get into, that it's foolish of me to stay in the bad situation and to go be in the better one. Repentance, which is what is happening here, repentance is not some supernatural work. It's not some great exertion of my will to realize that what I am is broken and destitute, and with God, everything is better. See, again, we misunderstand because law is so much ingrained in our minds. We misunderstand what repentance is. It's not about righting the scales. I've I've sinned and and the scale has tipped against me. And when I say I'm sorry, then it balances out. And so God, therefore, should love me. But that's not what repentance is. When we sin, the scale is removed. It's gone. When I turn to the Lord, I'm not turning to him and and saying, I'm sorry. Now you owe me your forgiveness. When I turn to the Lord, I'm saying, I am no longer worthy to be your son. And we cast ourselves upon his mercy. And as believers, who who maybe know the rest of the story more than the prodigal son here, we we recognize that it's not just about casting casting ourselves upon his mercy, but it's about casting ourselves upon the grace that was so freely given to us through the work of Christ Jesus on the cross. He has done all the work necessary for us to be back in the fold of God. Listen to me to to the very end of this thought. Because if you stop listening halfway through, you're going to hear something that's not true. God is not after your perfect actions. He is after you. God desires you, not your perfection. Now, when you turn yourself over to him and you cast yourselves upon him, it's like a a movable object being encountering an unstoppable force. You are a movable object. And when God enters into you, this is what we learn in Romans chapter 12, that we will be transformed by the renewal of our minds, the power that, that is dwelling in us by the Holy Spirit. You will be changed. And God demands our perfection, but he's not after our perfect work. He is after us. And this is why it's so shocking for us to realize just how much God has done to redeem us to himself. The son, he cast himself upon the father here. Now, what we often do is we focus on his repentance. But I don't think that this is the right thing to do. 
I'm not the only person that believes this, but because here's the twist. This father who has been shamed, verse 20 says, and he arose, the son arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. This, this father who had been shamed by his son, his, his rightful action should have been meet my son at the entrance of the gate of the city and, and, and gather the rest of the city around and hurl insults and, and shame him publicly with, with word and maybe with throwing some things at him to, to make sure that everybody in the culture knows that this, this action that my son has just done is not acceptable. That should have been the reaction of the father, but it's not the reaction that the father gives. Instead, what does the father do? He sees him off, off in the distance. He, he, he has to gird up his loins. He's got to pull up his, his, his outfit. And he runs to his son. Patriarchs don't run. They have people that they hire to run for them. He, he shames himself by running to his son, embraces his son, shames himself in embracing his son, and then, and then kisses his unclean son. Everything that the father does here is, is, is beyond foolish. But the father receives upon himself the shame rightfully deserving of his son. It is not just that God says, okay, I'm done with your debt. It's that the, the father says, you're done with your debt because I am taking your debt. Maybe you didn't hear me. You're done with your debt because God has taken your debt. Praise the Lord. And it goes it goes on, it's not, it's not even done. He's not even done. Verse 21, he says, And the son and the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Yes, you're right, son. But that's not what the father says. It says, but the father said to him, to, said to his servants, quickly, bring, bring quickly the best robe, honor. And put it on him, honor. Put a ring on his hand, honor. Shoes on his feet, honor. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead. And is alive. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. I've been reading through this book called The, the Valley of Vision. It's a collection of Puritan prayers. And one of the prayers is called Weakness. And, and in the prayer, this is what the prayer said. He says, I, did, I do not crouch at your feet as a slave before a tyrant, but exalt before you as a son with a father. See, so often we think our sin 
causes God to be a tyrant to us. Because we recognize how much our sin matters. But that does not change who God is. He is the Father who sent His Son to redeem us. He is the Father that when we come into His arms, He celebrates in heaven with the angels. Think about that for a minute. Jesus is suggesting that the Father, the Creator and Sustainer of the universe, the One who breathed life into you, the One whom you have spat on in your sin against Him, when you turn to Him, you cast yourselves at the feet of Jesus. God Himself is celebrating in heaven. Is there any more shocking picture that Jesus could paint for us? That's so good. And then in very typical Jesus fashion, he keeps going. And this, I think, is, again, it's challenging, but I think it really drives the point home for us. We've got we to gotta look at this. And it says, now, now his older son was in the field, and as he came near, the older son, as he came near, to the house. He heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, the older brother, he was angry, and he refused to go in. He's stomping his feet a little bit, throwing a temper tantrum. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered him, look, look, these many years I, I have served you and I've never disobeyed your command. You, you have, and yet you, you have never given me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when his son, this, this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you, have, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Now, we have to think of a word of caution here. I think a lot of times we think of this older brother as the Pharisees. I'm not convinced that that's right. I think in the next parable, the parable of the dishonest manager that's, that comes next, that's where Jesus addresses the Pharisees. Because what the Pharisees are doing is wrong action. And this is what he addresses. I think, rather, the older brother is, is our normal human logic. We think of ourselves especially those who grew up in the church, as people who have lived lives good and worthy of God's presence. But I think all of us in this room at least should know that that's not the case. We're all prodigal sons who have wandered away from the fold of God. And by His grace and love and compassion for us, come and cast ourselves at his feet. Our caution here is not don't don't think too highly of yourself. 
but it's rather this beautiful picture that it is not it's not improper to not celebrate the older brother, but it's only proper to celebrate the lost sinner who is found. What Jesus is teaching us by, by adding this on here is he's teaching us that the only time that we truly celebrate that we really get what celebration means is when we see a sinner saved. Isn't that great? Isn't it wonderful to think how amazing God's love is for us? That each and every one of us who are sinners, who are wretched, are not looked at in that light when we cast ourselves upon our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. As we talked about a couple weeks ago, we put on the garment that is Jesus. And we are seen by our Father in heaven as a sinner who was once lost and is now saved. And together we all rejoice. Now sometimes Missy and I, we watch different shows. Oftentimes there's there's storylines where, where a child dies. We watched a show last night, Resident. The episode we were watching, this, one of the kids dies. As she said, she turned and she says this a lot. She's like, I, I hate it. Whenever shows kill off a baby or a child, right? Because it's devastating. And the reason why it's devastating is most of us, we have a really hard time, especially as parents, disassociating our grief, the grief that we would feel if a child died. I can't even fathom how painful it would be. That's us. Loved ones of God, that's us. We were children of God that had died. But now just imagine for a minute the death of your child and then and then at some later date you're coming back to life. It'd be hard, I think, to ever stop celebrating. Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful that we do not crouch and tremble in fear as a slave before a tyrant king. But instead, we praise your name, we exalt you on high as a son a daughter with a father who has seen a dead child raised to life. It's in Jesus' precious name.